Okay, if you would turn and you're ready. Okay. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. As we continue in our study, tonight's message is entitled Christ Also Suffered for Us. Christ Also Suffered for Us. And we'll be looking at chapter 2 in verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 25. Last week, we began to study the second of Peter's uh, three main themes in this epistle, that one of submission. The first one was salvation. This one's of submission. Before we got to that point, though, we noted again one of these very poignant um, implied if-then statements that Peter likes to make. In fact, it's really a series, if you look at it, it's a series of such statements, beginning in verse 9 through verse 12, that exhort us to live in light of who we are. We're God's chosen people. Okay, that's, that's what we, how we should live. In verse 9, Peter uses these multiple descriptive words and titles to demonstrate what God has done for us in Christ. Not only are we his chosen people, if that weren't enough, but we're a royal priesthood, serving under a great high priest. And one day we shall reign with him in glory as his joint heir. We are also a holy nation, uh, a people set apart to service to God, And since we are his people, and he is above all holy, thus we too, as his people, should be holy in thought, word, and deed. In other words, if we are his chosen, royal, holy people, then let's live like it. It's pretty simple what it comes down to, right? If we're his, we're chosen, we're royal, we're supposed to be holy, then let's live in the light of it. Let's not pretend that we uh, don't need to do that or that we have other options. That's how we're supposed to live, to reflect that he has done a work in us. And Peter summarizes why God has made us his own special people at the end of verse 9 when he says that our purpose is to proclaim the praises. That's what we're chosen as his people, to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious holy light. Once we're the subject of wrath, deserving of his condemnation, and on the outside looking in, I guess you could say, so so to speak, but however we have obtained mercy, the mercy of God, And such mercy is worthy of boundless worship and boundless praise. And Peter then goes on with tender and imploring words to encourage his readers and us to consider that true citizenship and to live accordingly. Okay, this is all going to be kind of repeated here. It's important that we get the sense in which we're not saved to do whatever we want, but we're saved to glorify him and to live according to the principles which he's laid down here in his word. And he goes on to say, we must abstain from fleshly indulgences. We must fight against those passions which wage war against our souls uh, and conduct ourselves in a way that points unbelievers to God. That's all we should be doing. We are pilgrims. We're warrior pilgrims enlisted in the army of the Most High God who wears his, we wear his armor, as we're told in Ephesians 6. And we're supposed to live in a way that honors the king who gave us uh, his, who gave us our eternal life in Christ, gave us who were his enemies, by the way, uh, who don't deserve anything but his wrath, and yet he's he's given us eternal life. And we should live a life that doesn't give our enemies any reason to doubt who we are and who we belong to. So that's an important principle. We are to live our lives so that people might see Christ in us, the hope of glory, as we're told in Colossians 1, and by his grace be drawn unto him. That's, That's our job. So, Thus, Peter sets this foundation here of submission, the reason for his next major theme. And when he think of all that God has done for us in Christ, how can we not both submit to him 
and his authority structure that he has set forth in his creation. So that's the, the whole thing that's going to come out here. He, we are supposed to submit to him because he's purchased us with, his, with the blood of his son. We are his bondservants, and we are to submit to him, and we are to submit to the authorities that he puts over us in society as a whole because that's what he is designed to do. That's He is in control of all these things. So that's important. And uh, there's an authority structure that he set forth in his creation, and we're supposed to observe that. And though it's true that power and authority is often corrupted by sinful man, we know that quite well, uh, we see it all the time, yet before, we're, Peter makes it quite clear that we are to submit to the authority for what? Because we like it, or because it's a cool thing to do, or because we don't want to get in trouble. No, we're to submit to authority for the Lord's sake. That's his, that's his admonition. We're to submit to authority for the Lord's sake that God might be glorified in us. And as we've mentioned, we are citizens of heaven, pilgrims here on earth. So our first loyalty is to our heavenly home, right? That's where our first loyalty is, and it's divine laws. But God has ordained that we spend some time here on earth subject to rulers and governments, be it kings or governors or senators or mayors, whoever they might be, who are supposed to be punishing evildoers and praising those who do good. But even if they don't, they will be held accountable by God for how they conduct themselves. Okay, that's important, that he will hold them accountable. Our role, as Peter tells us in verse 15, is to so live our lives that we may, by our godliness and our silence, by our godliness, silence our critics and glorify God. Okay, that's how we are supposed to live. So, Christ has set us free from the curse of the law, but that freedom is not an excuse to live antinomian, which is no law, okay, kind of life. Peter gives us our gives us our orders succinctly here. If you remember in briefly in verse 17, when he says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So following the principles included in the second great commandment, we are to honor all men. In a narrower sense, we are to love our fellow believers, as we were told in 1 Peter 1.22 there, when he said, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently, with a pure heart. So that's, that's important that we have that love for one another. We talked about that, of course, in our study of spiritual gifts, because as we use the gifts, we're manifesting love for one another and for the body of Christ as a whole. So as for submitting to authority, we are first of all to fear God, Peter says. First of all, we fear God and then honor the king. And as we mentioned, this echoes Peter's reply to the Sanhedrin. In, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, he told them that we ought to obey God rather than men, right? So there's a, there's a balance there. Uh, however, as we tried to make clear last week, we are to obey lawful authority. Okay, that's the command here, to obey lawful authority, whether we agree with them or not, whether we agree with the law or not, unless they command us to disobey God's law, then we are to submit to authority. So Peter now continues this theme of submission, but this time he's focusing on the role of servants, a role pretty common in his day, yet it still speaks to us today. So by the context, he's speaking of Christian slaves or servants, whereas today we'd be talking about um, primary employees and their testimony to their employers. Okay, So we put it in the current context, we're talking about an employee situation. So initially, let's look at what we'll call service acceptable to God. Service acceptable to God, and we'll look at verses 18 through 20. Now as we begin this new portion of our text here in 1 Peter, keep an eye out as we go through this, for Peter's constant exhortation to do everything with God's glory and will in mind. Let's read verses 18 through 20. Servants, 
Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. I think the King James says froward. But this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? And when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, it is, this is commendable before God. Okay, we'll stop there for just a moment, okay, before we go on. So it's easy, isn't it? We can all say it's easy to work for someone who is kind, who is patient, who is considered, who is generous, right? Love to work for those kind of people. No complaints at all. But if your employer, or in this case, obviously in Peter's case, your master, is surly, is impatient, is inconsiderate, is cruel or miserly, it can take a pretty long time to get kind of comfortable in that kind of job. In fact, probably not at all. But just as we are to be subject to all lawful authority, as we're told in verses 13 14, so as servants, we are to serve with respect even if we aren't respected. Okay? That's our goal as a Christian. Why? Because we are to do all things as unto the Lord. That's what Peter's trying to get across here. It doesn't matter how the world treats us. We are to do all things as unto the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, drink, or whatsoever you do, which includes working and doing your job, do it all to the glory of God. As John MacArthur put it, he, he made me a quote from him, one's Christianity does not give the right to rebel against one's superior in the social structure, no matter how unfair or harsh he may be. Let's turn to a text that will help support these thoughts. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, and verses 5 through 8. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Paul, of course, speaking here. Ephesians 6, 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In sincerity of heart, ooh, here's the key, as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill doing service, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever anyone good, good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So bondservants be obedient and doing it as to Christ, doing service, good service, as to the Lord. There, Paul is re, repeating these themes we're seeing here in Peter as to how we are to do things for the glory of God. We see, going back in our text in verse 19, this underlying theme that I've mentioned earlier, submission to a master or an employer in modern times, no matter what their character, is commendable if, here's the if then, if such submission is done with an eye toward God, that men, men might see our patient endurance and glorify God, as we're told there back in verse 12. Robert Layton, the Puritan, in a commentary on this passage, made this observation. A sincere Christian may elevate his low calling, by being conscious of God, observing his will, and intending his glory in it. So we're always to live our lives being conscious of God, observing his will, and seeking his glory in it, no matter what's happening around us or what's happening to us at that time. Beloved, God will give us the grace to endure. He will give us the grace to endure, but we must seek to live for his glory and leave our circumstances in his, in his hand. It's up to him what our circumstances might be. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves amongst the whiners and complainers of this world who are never happy, who are never satisfied, who are always upset by things. Indeed, as our Lord endured all things for the glory of his Father, so should we. In doing so, we imitate our Lord. Here's the, here's the imitation. We're imitating Christ by enduring all things for the glory of the Father. 
and bringing our praise to him as well. Let's uh, turn over to Luke, Luke chapter 6 and verses 32 through 36. Luke chapter 6, verse 32 through 36. Again, this is the admonition that we live as unto the Lord. We don't expect the world to love us. We don't expect to be applauded by the world. We do it for God's, God's glory and for his praise. Verse 32 of Luke chapter 6. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. That's what we're to live for. And note the last part of that verse leading into verse 36. For he, referring to the Most High, is kind to the unthankful and the evil. He causes the rain to fall on the good and the evil, right? He's, he's kind. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. As we live this life in the footsteps of our Savior, we imitate our Lord and our merciful Heavenly Father by our life, by both enduring as well as being gracious and loving to those even who aren't loving and gracious to us. So again, going back to our text, Peter states the obvious, really, in verse 20, with a subtle reference to the goal of doing things that please God above all. Verse 20 again, <clears throat> excuse me, for what credit is it if you are beaten for your faults or take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer it, you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. Okay? If you act foolishly or you're a slothful servant or employee and as a result are punished, what do you have to complain about? You've gotten what you deserved. What merit is there in, in patiently enduring that punishment if you deserve the punishment? Rather, Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, here's the key, falsely for my sake. Okay, If they're saying vile and, and terrible things about you and persecuting you because you're doing evil things or you're doing bad things, well, then you have nothing to complain about. But if you're doing things for the glory of God, you're living your life, and they're accusing you of evil or they're punishing you for his name's sake, well, then rejoice. God will commend those who suffer patiently while doing good and serving him. And our goal should be to glorify him and testify of him before men by our deeds and words, no matter what it costs us. We look beyond temporal rewards or praise to the eternal blessings and hope that is ours in Christ. Our Lord endured unjust punishment and treatment, knowing the reward of his suffering was for our salvation. Cannot we endure it a little for him? when in him we shall enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to come, as we're told in Ephesians 1, verse 3. So let's move on now to another section of the, our text, and we'll look at verses 21 through 24, and we'll call this Christ left us an example. We've already touched on that already. Christ left us an example, though we'll extend a little bit, as, as Peter does. The patient endurance of injustice by God's people is not apart from God's will. It's not a mistake. God didn't say, oops, I forgot to protect you in that situation. But as we patiently endure suffering for the sake of God, he has a purpose in it. Let's read verses 21 through 24 to show what's going on here. For to this you were called. To this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, 
who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose, whose stripes you were healed. Simon Kistemacher, in his commentary on this particular portion of the text, says this, Peter tells his readers that they have been called by God to the situation in which they endure suffering. In other words, they must realize both that God knows the injustice, which they are patiently enduring, and that he has called them to face the injustice. So it's not an accident. It's not one of those things that God just didn't pay attention to. No, he's called, he calls people sometimes into an unjust situation that they might shine as lights in the midst of darkness and persecution. He calls us into difficult circumstances that we might identify ourselves as trusting in him. So that it's not a matter of we have to have everything going so well and the sun's always shining and everything's so comfortable and nobody bothers us. No, he calls us into challenging situations that we might reflect his glory and manifest that we're trusting in him, not in our circumstances. We're called by God's grace to salvation through faith in Christ, but we're also called to follow in our Savior's footsteps imitating him. And the word example here in our text in the Greek is hupogramos, which literally means underwriting. Okay? We're called to, to um, ex- be an example. Or he's, we're following his example. He's an example to us, leaving us an example. Hupogramos, it means underwriting. In other words, it's to trace letters from one page by putting it on top of something. Okay? If you, got, you know how to do that. You've, I'm sure you've done it with your kids. Uh, you have a, a dark piece, a dark printing on something, and you put a a thin sheet over the top, and you trace it. That's what's called underwriting in the Greek. Christ is our suffering servant. He is our example, suffering evil for doing good. What is what Peter has been talking about in these last few verses? We are to model our life after Christ. As he is patiently enduring suffering to fulfill his Father's will and to bring him glory, so should we. Now, we don't look for suffering that we might model Christ, okay? But as it comes into our life, as we endure these things, we don't say, that's not fair, it's not right. We looked at what Christ endured and all the hassle he got, the hatred he had, those trying to kill him all the time before he actually got to the point of giving his life up. As he lived that life, enduring all that suffering and persecution, we shouldn't expect to have an easy life here. And as we are faced with those situations, we look to him and we walk in his footsteps and we look to him for strength. Mark 8, verses 34 and 35, when he had called the people to himself, With his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Note, he didn't say there, take up your pillow and follow me. He said, take up your cross and follow me, which involves, obviously, pain and discomfort and hardship. So if we're to follow him, We don't follow him just into the pleasant pastures and valleys. No, sometimes we have to follow him into difficult circumstances uh, that we have to face, and we trust him, and we know that he endured those things. Therefore, by God's grace, we can endure those things. Again, we don't look for it, but as they come into our life, we know God's sovereign. He's directing these trials, these challenges, that we might shine forth for him. To emphasize this point, Peter quotes here Isaiah 53, uh, verse 9, in verse 22 of our text, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was innocent, sinless in all ways, and thus his suffering was completely unjust. It was completely unjust. 
we should expect no better treatment if we follow him. And we certainly can't say that we, like him, have never sinned. Okay? So, by faith, we are to simply commit our lives to God's hands. And Peter emphasizes this again in 1 Peter 4.19, where he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let me read that again, 1 Peter 4.19. We'll get there eventually in a couple weeks. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Peter goes on to testify, and remember his testimony is that of an eyewitness, of our Lord's silent submission when unfairly insulted and mistreated. We note again his reference to Christ committing himself to him who judges righteously here in our text. In other words, the Heavenly Father. And we can do no less if we would be his disciples. We commit ourselves to God, that he's in control. Psalm 96, verse 13, we understand this. For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with his truth. He will come to be the judge. And we can commit ourselves to the righteous judge and know that we are in his hands. And he will deal with the wicked as he desires. But in us, we have rejoicing because we are his and we have eternal life waiting for us. Is it easy to do that? Obviously not. It's pretty challenging at times. Perhaps even difficult beyond what we can think we can endure. It's displeasing to our flesh when we're persecuted not to strike back or to justify ourselves and say, you know, you guys are are wrong, I'm right kind of thing. Even Paul had difficulty in holding back when he was treated rudely, as we read in the scriptures. In fact, you see that in Acts chapter 23, verses 2 and 3. Robert Layton, the Puritan, admonished us this way in this verse. He said, It is true greatness of spirit to despise most of those things that make us angry with other people. Let me read that again. It is true greatness of spirit to despise most of those things that make us angry with other people. And here's the interesting latter part of that quote. Oh, that we had less of the spirit of the dragon among us and more of the spirit of the dove. Oh, that we had less of the spirit of the dragon among us and more of the spirit of the dove. Amen to that. And I must admit, that's a challenge for me. I need grace in that area to have less of the spirit of the dragon, to less quick reaction, to less anger, and more of a spirit of patience as the dove implements or shows us. Now, we must realize that Jesus did much more than just suffer as an example for us, right? And Peter sets this forth in verse 24. Let me read 24 again. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Christ's redemptive work is far more significant than just the setting of an example by suffering silently. He suffered bearing our sins on the tree, the cross. Peter quotes indirectly here from Isaiah 53 and verse 12. Calvin said this about this, For as under the law the sinner, that he might be released from guilt, substituted a victim in his own place, so Christ took on himself the curse due to our sins, that he might atone for them before God. In Hebrews 9.8 we find these words, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So he bore our sins. He didn't just set an example for us by suffering persecution. He substituted himself as our Redeemer. He put himself in our place. He bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might be made right in the sight of God. In fact, this reminds me of um, another if-then statement 
In fact, he inserts kind of Peter kind of inserts an if-then statement here that challenges us to, to believers to live as unto righteousness. Okay, reminds me of Romans six eleven. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed in the sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. This reckoning is not a one-time act, by the way. We're not just dead to sins once and then we do whatever we want. No, we are dead to sins and we continually put ourselves in a position of being dead to sin, continuously by dying to sin and living for righteousness. That's what our Christ's work should mean to us. If we have died to the sinful inheritance of the first Adam, then we ought to live as a joint heir of the last Adam. Okay? If we're dead to Adam the first, we should be alive in Adam the second. Christ, who, is, uh, who lived a life of perfect righteousness for us, is the one we should seek to live like. 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. He is righteous, therefore we should be righteous. And as we do so, we're mindful of what he did for us because by his strife, by his suffering, by his death and his resurrection, we are healed. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. Let's move on now to another section. We'll call this Returning to the Shepherd and Bishop of Our Souls. Returning to the Shepherd and Bishop of Our Souls, the last verse in chapter 2. He concludes this chapter with a tender picture, really, of our relationship with Christ. Verse 25, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer or bishop of your soul. You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Know how he subtly reads, weaves uh, Isaiah 53 phrases throughout, really, the latter part of the chapter. And again here in verse 25, Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, for you were like sheep going astray. It's almost like Peter had that passage on his mind when he wrote this text. He's weaving these little portions of Isaiah's a great message there in Isaiah 53 into his message. There's no exceptions to the rule. The word of God clearly tells us that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? We all know that. Romans 3.23, we all have no doubt heard that sheep, though, are not particularly smart animals or bright animals. They have a propensity for getting into trouble, mainly by wandering off into dangerous settings. How wise and how gracious is our God to compare us to lost sheep? Because we so often foolishly stray into sinful paths, not being restrained, by his grace. We all have inherited the sinful independent spirit from Adam, from the first Adam, that rejects God's authority and seeks its own way. And we need the Holy Spirit to draw us from our wandering and teach us to cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. There's that picture again. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. As a lost sheep, we cry out, Lord, help us. Help me. I'm lost. And even as a Christian, there are times when we need to cry out, Lord, help me. I, I need help. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm, I'm going astray. I don't know where I'm, where I'm going. Peter's analogy here of a shepherd and his sheep is also a picture of salvation, obviously. As John MacArthur points out, the word returned here, have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our soul, means to turn toward or to turn about and refers to the repentant faith of a person that comes to salvation. Isaiah 44 and verse 22 says, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, like a thick cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Return to me. That's God's call. 
And as Peter's been illustrating here in our text, our good shepherd has done more than just lead his flock or be an example to them. Jesus himself declared the breadth of his shepherding, the measure of his shepherding. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd doesn't just set an example for a sheep. What does he do? He gives his life for the sheep. Christ gave his life for us. That's his example as a true shepherd. The Lord suffered the punishment that we deserved. He suffered the punishment of our sinful wanderings from the Father's will that we might be returned to the fold and become a part of his flock. And what joy and what hope and what eternal blessings are ours in Christ that we are brought back into that fold. How tender and compassionate a shepherd he has expressed to us in Isaiah 40, verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That's our shepherd, a tender, compassionate shepherd. Turn with me to one more text just before we close here. Ezekiel, chapter 34. Ezekiel 34. Look at verses 11 through 16. Again, a picture of God, the true shepherd. And if you think you have a tough job, consider us elders who are supposed to be under shepherds to the true shepherds and what responsibilities we have. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and the valleys and on the inhabited places of the country. And I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what is lost and bring back which is driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen which was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. God is the true shepherd. He is the gracious and merciful, condescending shepherd that cares for us. Praise God, he is such a shepherd. Reminds me of the classic hymn, of course, which we all know, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. Into pleasant pastures, feed us. For our use, thy folds prepare. May God bless us as our great shepherd. We note here as we conclude that Peter is referring to Christ as the shepherd or overseer or bishop of our souls. The Greek word here is episkopos, which literally means a superintendent or one that oversees a project or, in in this case, a church. Though some denominations have made them so, these terms shepherd or pastor and bishop or overseer are not mutually exclusive titles or positions, they are both terms used to describe the office of an elder in a church, the body of Christ. And the elder's job as a shepherd or pastor is to lead the sheep of God in the way of truth. In other words, God's word. In the role of bishop or overseer, he is to watch over the flock, guarding, guarding it from false doctrines and errors, caring for the spiritual well-being of the sheep. Ultimately, elders are constantly, as under-shepherds, pointing the sheep to their good shepherd, the Lord Jesus. That's our role. It constantly points you to Christ Jesus as the one they must follow and obey, just as we must follow and obey. John 10, 27 and 28, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. You've probably heard that verse a thousand times in your life if you've been a Christian for long. But it's a comfort to us to know that no one can snatch 
us out of his hands. We are his sheep. We are a sheep that he gave his life for. He's given us eternal life in, in return for giving his life and we'll never perish. We'll never be snatched out of his hands. We're always his. So ask yourself the question, beloved. Are you listening to Christ's voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit and his word, and are you following him? Are you following the good shepherd? Are you following the example to our souls? Robert Layton said, to follow Christ is to follow life, for he is the life. So let's seek by his grace to follow in the footsteps of the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, right? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised the cross, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're following him. You get the sense of, it's like if you're running a marathon, you're following the lead runner, okay? You're following the path. Christ set the example. He's the captain of our souls. He's the lead runner. We follow him. We follow in his footsteps. We endure what he endures, if necessary, to glorify him. May God enable us in these days, these challenging days, to do just that. May all the glory be his in the church, in Christ Jesus, world without end. Amen. Let's pray.